Our Old Testament reading comes from Genesis 22, verses 1 to 14. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they, both, so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, him, behold behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading comes from Romans chapter 15, verses 4 to 6. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please stand as you are able for the reading of the Holy Gospel? The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the fifth chapter. Jesus said, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. This is the gospel of the Lord. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly set in the heavens. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Well, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, 
Grace and peace are you on this fine Advent evening. That was a snow joke. Sorry, sorry, I should have clarified a little bit further. It feels like Advent, doesn't it? It feels like we're already racing down that course toward Christmas, and in a part we are, but we're not there yet. And we are still, as a congregation, focusing on what God does for us to make us unique. And his unique calling tonight leads us to talk about the Scriptures. Now, the Scriptures are sometimes called the good book, right? And I don't know about you, but I, I do love a good book. And I have, I have lots of good books. In fact, it's hard for me to pick just one. Uh, if I were going to pick uh, my favorite classic book, my favorite classic book is probably Tess of the D'Urbervilles. Uh, Thomas Hardy, some of you probably remember reading this at some point in your life. Maybe, maybe some of you are saying, I've never read that book at any point in my life. That's good too. Um, but this is a book that I had to read in college, a classic that I, I really fell in love with because of the way that it portrays a person in sin and the way that society views that person in sin, a, a book outside the Christian realm that speaks of what happens when someone betrays society sees as norm. Tess the D'Urberville is probably my favorite classical book. Um, theological book is probably Fear and Trembling, Soren Kierkegaard. Some of you, if you had a philosophy class, probably had to read something by Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, this is probably his most famous work, Fear and Trembling. Of course, the title comes from the New Testament. Multiple times in the New Testament, we read that phrase, Fear and Trembling, approach the Lord with fear and trembling. And this book, I'll be honest with you, this is going to tell you a little something about me as a student. I, uh, I was assigned a, a report on this for seminary, and I was supposed to write, you know, a little five-page synopsis of the book or something like that, and, and it's just a little book, as you can see, and I thought, well, psh, this is going to take nothing. So I started reading it like 11 o'clock at night, figuring I'm just going to plow through it. It's like 100 pages long. I'll just write the quick paper. I'll be done with it and on. But I was captivated by it, absolutely captivated by it, because this book deals with Genesis 22, our Old Testament reading for tonight. And it deals with what happens when God asks you to do what is seemingly impossible. And from this book come certain phrases that we use all the time. In fact, Soren Kierkegaard is the one who first started calling people knights of faith. Someone who was a stalwart, who could do anything because they trusted in the Lord's work. It was Soren Kierkegaard in this book who first used a phrase we use today, which is take a leap of faith. That's in this book. So my favorite kind of theological book would be that. Uh, modern book, I, uh, I was introduced a few years ago to Malcolm Gladwell. And I see some of you, I see more nods for Malcolm Gladwell than for either of the other two. I don't know what that says about us, but I, I love Malcolm Gladwell. Anything Malcolm Gladwell writes, I read. Um, this is probably my favorite, a book called Outliers, a fantastic book um, in which he investigates what it means to be an overnight success. Right? And one of the things he says is, if you look historically, if you do the research, anyone who has ever been an overnight success, it has taken them 10,000 hours to become an overnight success. Kind of fascinating, isn't it? Tells you if you want to do anything great, if you want to be a, an overnight success, you've got to work hard at your craft. Malcolm Gladwell. Well, those are just three of, of my favorite books, three that I still find myself returning to. And I could say, of course, there, there is a fourth. <laughs> this book is kind of good. I kind of find myself sort of captivated by it. And in fact, it's, it's oftentimes, it's called the good book. But is it, is it just a good book? I mean, is it, is it just a book that belongs on the shelf with, with all the others? 
Some look at it that way. Some emphasize the wrong things from the Scriptures. They look at the Bible as just a good book, and since it's a good book, it can't contradict anything that I think or believe. Because if it contradicts what I think or believe, it can't be good. And so we make the Bible out to be what we want it to be. And we only, we only turn to the parts that we like. In fact, famously, Thomas Jefferson did this. Some of you know about the Jefferson Bible where Thomas Jefferson cut all of the works and miracles of Jesus out of the New Testament and made the Gospels merely books of sayings from Jesus the good teacher. And then it could be a good book. The truth is, many don't even see it as a good book. Many dismiss it because it contains so many scientific inaccuracies. After all, the Bible begins with a story about creation that took six days. And of course, we know from scientific evidence that the earth is millions and billions of years old and that creation part of it had to be longer than six days. It can't possibly fit the narrative that we know today. It contains so many scientific inaccuracies where it talks about the sun and the moon almost as parallels, the sun being the great light and the moon being the lesser light. But it's not. It's a... It's a thing that reflects. It has no light of its own. You can't trust the Bible. It contains not only scientific inaccuracies, but contradictions. How many angels were there at the tomb on the morning of the resurrection? After all, one of the Gospels says that there were two, and one of the Gospels says that there was one, and one of the Gospels never even mentions angels. What human being, if they saw an angel, wouldn't mention it? It contains contradictions. So it can't be a good book. There are others who simply dismiss it because it contradicts the way that they view the world. And there are others who will dismiss it because it's just book full of fairy tales. They're, they're good to read, but they really have no place in my daily life. So is it a good book? Can it be a good book when it contains spots that are clearly missing and there are parts in it that have brackets around it that say most reliable early manuscripts don't contain this story. It's been transmitted badly. And so can it really be a good book? Can it really be something that I can trust? And the truth is, brothers and sisters, if we're going to call it a good book, we believers are going to be confronted by these very things. We believers are going to have to have answers for these very objections to the Scriptures. And the truth is, I think you know this. You think you know my bias. Each one of those has an answer. Each one of those objections to the Scriptures fits a narrative that the Bible doesn't require. Each one of those things has a worldview which is entirely different than what's spoken in here. And so to believe the Bible is not to disprove the rest of the world. It's instead to trust what God says about it first to try to form my worldview based on what he says rather than what I think. So what do we do? What do we do with this book? I'm going to go one step further before I make it better. The truth is that we as believers have done our part to muddy the waters. You see, we as believers even and unfortunately, the church from time to time 
have used this book to club people that we don't agree with. It's been used to oppress people groups. In fact, it was taught for a long time that the, the plague, the mark of Ham, was a different skin color, and so those people should be oppressed. It was taken out of context, and so people will allow the Bible to say whatever their itching ears want to hear, even, even at times, brothers and sisters, within the church. Yes, the church has erred with this book. We've muddied the waters for other people, and so it shouldn't be surprising when people hear us try to prove a point or advocate a behavior based on this book, and they rebel and push back and say, yeah, but. And what we shouldn't be surprised by is something that I tell you all the time. You see, when you find a difficult part of life, when you find something that is hard for you to endure, rest assured that the Bible speaks to those very situations. And so as you know, those heroes of faith, those knights of faith that we read about in the scriptures, each one of them is also portrayed as a sinner. But sometimes that story isn't told. And so we begin to think that if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we have to be perfect. But the Bible speaks of real life, not a fairy tale. And so we find our identity there as well. And the same is true as we look at the Scriptures. When we search the Scriptures over and over again, we find the Scriptures speaking about themselves and the Scriptures speaking about the attacks even on them. And so Jesus... In John chapter 5, our reading for tonight, addresses those people of his day who were misusing the sacred scriptures, misusing what we would call the Old Testament, misusing it to suit their own purposes, to say what they want it to say, to achieve the ends that they want to achieve. And as they do, Jesus says to them, you search the scriptures, but you don't understand them. Because you think that in them you will hear the voice of God. In them you will see the actions of God. In them you will achieve the eternal life and that you want. But the scriptures mean nothing if they don't point to Jesus. Jesus says, the scriptures bear witness about me. That's verse 39 of our reading tonight. The scriptures bear witness about me. What we learn from this passage, what we learn from the words of Jesus himself, are that everything that is written is always and only to point to him. You see, God has one goal in mind with this book. And the one goal is this, reconciliation with his fallen people. That's it. That's what this book is all about, what God is doing to redeem a lost people, what God is doing to fix that which sin has broken. That's the story. And the restoration we learn from the Scriptures can only come about through Jesus. And so the Gospel writer John says this, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. You see, the scriptures in fact do give us eternal life, but not eternal life in a way that we create restoration, not eternal life in the way that we make all things right, not eternal life in the way that we ascend to God and lay claim to him. They are only about reconciliation of God to his lost people through Jesus Christ. They speak one message, and that is a consistent message. And, and so the disciples of the day, those to whom Jesus is speaking, they recognize this. And when they hear these things about Jesus, when they see what Jesus does, 
he actually says to them, if it's too much, you can leave. And do you remember the disciples' response? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, in you is my salvation. In you is my reconciliation. In you are broken things fixed. In you is the unlovable, loved. Where else would I go? That's what the disciples believe and trust, and that's what is the invitation from God for us, that these scriptures were not just written for them at that time, but for all people of all time, which means the scriptures were written for you, that God intends for you to know that in this you have life through Jesus Christ. And you know this, but this book is written over hundreds of years with many different writers, and yet each of them bears witness to the same thing because each of them has the same God breathing in his lungs, the same God speaking in his ear. Each one of them is guided and directed by the Holy Spirit so that this book written over hundreds of years by different authors suddenly forms a coherent whole where its consistent message is this, God loves the world. And in all the brokenness that we see, God is the one who's acting to change it. He's bringing reconciliation through his son, Jesus Christ, as we said last week, through his son, Jesus Christ, alone. This message, brothers and sisters, informs who we are as believers. And so, yes, it does speak to other things, but all of the other stuff flows out of this. It all flows out of the work that God does for us in Jesus Christ. And so it does speak to us about how the world is formed and made. It does speak to us about our place in society. It does speak to us about how we are to interact with government. It does speak to us about how we are to love our neighbor. It does speak to us about all of these things in life, and yet these are not the main point. The primary point never changes. The primary point is what God is doing to reconcile a fallen world to himself. Primary point is that God loves you in Jesus Christ, and he wants you to know it. He wants you to know what he is doing. He wants you to know what you have done. And so, brothers and sisters, the scriptures are for you because Jesus is for you. He is your Savior to redeem you in your lostness, you in your brokenness. He's here to redeem and to reconcile you to the Father, to overcome your sin through the forgiveness of sins which he earned for you on the cross. And that is what this book means for you. And, and so what does that mean? How, how do we carry that out then in life? Because I don't want this just to, to end with a kind of ethereal sense of, yep, it's for me. But it needs to be practical. You need to know certain things. You need to know first and foremost that there is no substitute for reading this book. There's no other book that can quite compare. There's no other book that speaks of what this does so clearly. There's no substitute for reading it. In fact, a wonderful old Christian, a wonderful now saint of God, once said to me, the only Bible you have is the Bible you know. And if you don't know it, 
It just stays a closed book. And if you don't know it, then you're merely learning about God and not hearing his voice. And so, yes, we, we are supposed to be ones who work hard at understanding the Scriptures. And again, bear with me, brothers and sisters, because I know this is a big book, and I know that it contains some things that are hard to understand. And as you read it, you're going to come across them. And so I want to encourage you not to give up, but to continue struggling with them. And I want you to know something. God actually does not intend for this book to be read outside of community. God intends for this book to be read together, that together we understand what the Holy Spirit speaks to us, that together we understand these things, that we don't get lost or led astray. And that means not by any leader, nor by any teacher, nor by any follower, but that we study this word together so that we understand and unpack what God speaks to us today, the message of reconciliation that he has for us. But as you read it, And again, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't read it alone. It means that you don't only read it alone. As you read it, ask yourself always two questions, especially in those difficult passages. Ask yourself, as I read this, am I feeling comforted or am I feeling accused? Is this a word that as I read it, I say, boy, this is really hard for me to hear. It's sort of speaking of something in my life that I don't have or something that I don't do or something that I don't know. When you feel that level of accusation, let it remind you that you need someone to reconcile you to the Father. Let those words that cut you remind you of the primary message of the Bible, which is that God is reconciling broken things. God is reconciling that which has fallen, that he is calling you back. And in those places where you're comforted, remind yourself that this, this is what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. The second question to ask yourself as you read the scriptures is a really simple one. What does this teach me about Jesus? What does this passage teach me about Jesus? And I guarantee, brothers and sisters, if you, if you will wrestle with that question, no matter what passage of Scripture you're reading, you will see God's work and God's hand in it. And you say, yeah, but what about those old parts? I love this one, by the way, so I'm going to answer this objection. What about those parts in the Old Testament that just have so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and there were 131 of this tribe and 1,057 of this tribe and 737 of this tribe, and you're like, as you're reading it. What about those parts? What do those teach me about Jesus? And I always tell people, that's a great question. It's really easy. It means that God knows every single one of his people. And you want to know what comfort you can take from that? Is that there's another book that we don't get to read from. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And in it is your story. In it is your name written right there in the Lamb's handwriting where he declares you to be one that he knows. You see, every single passage in the Scriptures can point us toward what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so ask those two questions. Am I feeling accused or comforted? Ask yourself that second question. What does this teach me about Jesus? And never let your, never let your reading of the Scriptures be tainted by anything else. Never let them be tainted by the accusations of the world. Never let them be tainted by the doubts of sin. Instead, know this. 
It really is a good book because it teaches us about a God who is reconciling a fallen world, even us, to himself. And it teaches you that you are loved because it's a story, brothers and sisters, that is all about Jesus. For his glory and our good, amen.